0: Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, friends. Peace be with you. I, um, we... If you're new to Trinity, I'm one of the pastors here. My name's Casey, and I'm glad you're here. Um, one of the things that we did as a church body over this last week was we all gathered together for a fancy dinner um, where some of us put on jackets and bow ties, and um, some of us put on nice dresses and makeup and other things. And we got together, and we drank good drink, and we had good food, and we just shared you know, the experience of life together as Christians, committed to one another, committed to the gospel. Uh, and it was just a glorious thing. It was just a really beautiful uh, expression uh, of an evening that I'd, I didn't even really, I don't know about you if you were there, if you wanted to leave and get out of there, I didn't really want to leave because it was just, it was rich uh, and, it was, and it was special. Um, and together we talked about, and, and we kind of held up the idea of the local church being God's mission strategy in the world. Uh, the local church has always been God's mission, strategy in the world. His, his calling together of a people that he could reveal himself to, his glory to, and then reveal his glory through uh, to the world uh, is what we're about. And as we got together and we, we shared, it was just cool to share stories and, and, and just uh, the flavor of that room uh, was a beautiful flavor. And at the same time, I'm thinking, man, I wished people could just, I wish we could just go out and bring everybody into this room. Uh, so that they could experience the love and sort of the grace and the mercy and just the, the humility and, and just the cheerfulness of what was going on there. Um, and it was a beautiful picture to me of um, what it means to be the body. Um, and the idea then that God would use a small group of people um, and uh, a small, but mighty group of people, right? <laughs> I don't want, not denigrating, I'm small. Some of us are very mighty and together we're a beautiful <laughs> picture of uh, what God's doing in the world. I just want everybody to see it. Um, and I think that, that is an amazing apologetic when you can get people from all over the, you know, every walk of life, different stratas of uh, economic you know, growth or, or wealth and different ages and, and just all over the country in a, in a room that you know, we don't all have the same sort of interest uh, but we share a common savior in Jesus and that binds us uh, together. And it got me thinking about what I'm about to say. This morning, that was all by way of preface, but we're gonna talk about evangelism this morning. And I'm just thinking, man, what a beautiful picture of evangelism. It's just to hold this community up as something that Jesus has done. And he's putting together, and it's not perfect, but he's he's working it out. And these people love each other. And it got me thinking about a time in my life, right towards the end of my undergraduate career when I was in college and before I had any real community that could give me solid advice, uh, I took a job selling knives with Cutco um, because I didn't have any real community to say, no, you sh- don't do that, there's better ways. Uh, uh, so what I did was just go around and pressure people to buy and drop a grand on, you know, some cutlery. Uh, it was good cutlery, but, I mean, $1,000, that's a lot of money. And so, and it was a miserable three weeks for me. You know, I didn't last long. <laughs> and uh, I did make some commission, but I would think people felt sorry for me. Um, and it, it just reminded me, I it kind of opened my eyes to um, sort of this, uh, thing that I don't know what else to call it other than pressure evangelism. For many of us, that pressure of closing the deal or the, the pressure of the sale experience is what comes to mind when you hear the word evangelism. That's not how it should be. It shouldn't be that way at all. It's not, the, the New Testament never really pictures it that way. We never see any sort of pressure. Um, and as you can probably guess, I wasn't a very good Cutco salesman. Uh, I needed the cash, but I didn't have the panache, is what, um, that's the only line I got. My pi- I used to say, what was my line? I used to say, um, every chop and every drop, every slice and every dice is one more threat to your fine cutlery. Uh, that's not bad, is it? It's bad. It's Okay. <laughs> So I lasted three weeks. Anyway, I was out of there. Um, But in my pitch, just wasn't believable because it was just one guy who clearly didn't even own $1,000 at all (laughs) trying to sell people knives that cost $1,000 by himself. It wasn't the knives' fault. They were quality. I was cold calling folks who weren't interested. And I obviously wasn't practicing what I was preaching. I couldn't even afford them. And so if I'm honest, though, my Cutco experience is, is sort of like how I feel sometimes when I think about uh, evangelism in my own life and at times how I process wh- what is God calling me to do. The gospel, as a Christian, is your pitch. Uh, but not just the gospel, it's, it's also the gospel community, uh, the people that the gospel creates together, the local church. Um, and oftentimes, that pitch isn't believable. Um, and it's not because the gospel isn't quality. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, born, dead, resurrected, ascended, peace with God. That it's not the gospel isn't the problem. The problem is usually that our motivations don't line up with our beliefs or or what we what we say we believe on paper doesn't line up with how we practice what we say we believe in community. It's been said that the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but then who walk out the door and deny him by their lives together. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And we've all had an experience like that, right? That's why, you don't, that's why you don't really give much credence to the guy on a soapbox with a bullhorn, screaming, everybody's gonna go to hell. Because, you know, if you don't turn or burn or whatever that is, because he's out there all alone. And you're looking at that and go like, eh, there's not much to that that draws me in really. There's not much there that I find believable. We don't want unbelievable evangelism that talks a big game, but then drops the ball when we walk out the door. We want believable evangelism. So I titled this message, Believable Evangelism, the kind that preaches sound doctrine and strives for a gospel culture that resembles and embodies uh, and beautifies the gospel that we say we believe, because we believe grace. We're all about grace, and we want to embody grace so that our evangelism then is believable. We don't settle for just preaching the truth. You can't just preach the truth and leave it out there uh, without also embodying grace because truth without grace is ugly, and uh, grace without truth is is cowardly. Uh, But in that room this week, as we are having the dinner, I was like, man, this room feels like the gospel to me. That's what we want. We want a community that doesn't just say we believe the gospel, but actually when you're in it, it feels like the gospel. Uh, And when you put those two things together, we get believable evangelism. When doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, one pastor says, the church will be powerful. And that's what we're after. Uh, one, One pastor put it this way. One cannot explain the explosive power of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. And by the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful. And it must be there. And so last week, Mark brought a message that love must be sincere and we're to be devoted to one another in love. And how that plays out, it creates a gospel culture. Sound doctrine, gospel doctrine, gospel culture together brings something beautiful. And in Romans 12, uh, we're going to see that today. That's the recipe for believable evangelism. Paul, up until this point, he's been detailing for us lots of gospel doctrine. How the gospel uh, just levels the playing field between Jews and Gentiles. There's no superiority. Neither one can boast. God doesn't show favoritism. And it brings communion with God for, for all. And all, then, are reoriented towards one another in love and in service. And that love and service together, then, is to be held up to the world as something to be believed, something to be... Enjoyed. And this morning, I want to share with us from the text that we just read three characteristics of a gospel culture that I think will help us as we strive toward a more believable evangelism. So here we go. We've got three verses, three points. Keep it easy. Verse 14 is where we're going to start. And I want to say this believable evangelism blesses and does not curse. Believable evangelism, a community, a church, That is believable in the eyes of the world with the good news, blesses and does not curse. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Literally, Paul, the word he's using here is is a good word. He says, bless those. It's the eulogy that we often hear at a funeral. Someone's gonna stand up and give a good word. It's the idea of saying things and, and thinking through how we can take seriously an opportunity to speak life into someone's life or over someone. And when we see things that are good and right, we speak God's blessing to them and over them. And we wish people well. It's the idea of seeking the thriving and the flourishing of anyone. Because not just your buddies, it's not just good vibes with your buddies, Paul says. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said something very similar. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And Jesus is pointing out to us how this behavior distinguishes us from the world. And Paul's already told us, don't be conformed to the world. In view of God's mercy, all that he's done for you in Christ, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's that mean? It means you bless and you do not curse. Jesus is saying, this is how uh, people are going to know that you're my disciples. He goes on, verse 32 of chapter 6 in Luke. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. To truly bless those who persecute us is to treat them as friends. Our goal in blessing our enemies should be the same as Jesus, not to condemn them, but to bring them to Him, to see them, embraced by the love of God, to see them saved. and This is the, the in view of God's mercy mindset that Jesus wants his church to have, and Paul's saying the same thing here. He says, what do you want for your enemy, is sort of the question he's leaving you with. Who are your enemies, and what do you want for them? In December of 2000, my basketball coach and um, his four friends, I was a sophomore in high school, At the time, they were playing a board game in their house when two uh, men kicked in the door and they robbed them and they assaulted them and they took them uh, to an ATM and took all their money and they took them out in a snowy field and shot them all in the back of the head. And that was a terrible time in my life. Um, His fiance, uh, who he was just about to marry, uh, was one of them. Um, And she was the, the only survivor uh, because she had, like, a hair clippy or whatever um, in her hair, a barrette, and the bullet grazed it, and it ricocheted off enough that uh, it missed her, whatever it is, in her brain, and God by God's grace, she w- was saved, and she was laying there, and, and she made it to safety, and, you know, the rest is the story after that. But a week later, at the funeral uh, for m- my coach, our entire team was there, the whole town um, was there, essentially, um, as you can imagine. And then the room fell silent. It was like the, the air was sucked out of this place. Uh, and I remember standing there off to the side, Catholic Church, uh, and looking and seeing down the aisle, this long sanctuary aisle, came this woman in black and had a black hat and, and the veil. And it was, it was his fiance. She had made it to the funeral. Nobody expected her to be there. And she walked down the aisle, she walked straight up to the, to the pulpit. In the midst of her grief, she was able to speak blessings. Um, into a room of people who were just confused and grieving. Um, and she, she spoke words of forgiveness and blessing on these two brothers that did these things, forgiving men who had assaulted her and who had killed her fiance and her friends. Um, and then she closed her time by praying for their salvation. Um, I was a sophomore in high school. I'll never forget that day. Um... That's blessing your enemies. That's not cursing those who persecute. She had every right in the world to curse them. But in view of God's mercy, she opted to bless rather than to curse. And you have to ask yourself, we have to ask ourselves, if a community were to act like that, what would the result be? If your enemy treated you that way, would you want to know more about that person's God? Now imagine an, an entire church of people blessing and not cursing like that. How powerful would that be? That's believable evangelism. That's a gospel culture on display. So we here at Trinity, we've got to think differently about how we use our words and the posture of our hearts towards those people we engage with every day, day to day in the gospel. How we, we can be a blessing to them it means something, I think, that Jesus came to us as a word. The Gospel of John 1, chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God's good word to the world. No one, I believe, is, is suffering from too much encouragement. Anybody, anybody got too much encouragement in their life? Anybody just, I'm, I'm good with blessing. I don't need more. no. So, so Paul's encouraging the church in the midst of persecution to be people who bless. Don't be like the world. They don't, they, don't, they don't bless those who curse them. They hit back harder. He's saying, no, you as a community, you bless those who persecute you. You pray for those who hate you. And I don't know about you, but that's not easy. That's not easy. If someone crosses me or someone I love, I'm so quick. I'm not careful, which I'm often not, um, so quick to be ready to fight fire with fire And Jesus' community. His new humanity is not to be that way. Let's foster a culture of blessing and not cursing. Does that sound like a good idea? That sounds like a good idea to me. Let's be a community that embodies the gospel so deeply that when it's squeezed under pressure, it oozes blessing even onto its enemies. That's hard to do even with people you love. And it's only through letting the gospel sort of come to roost in your heart that that's even possible. Romans chapter five. We gotta remember Romans five that you were loved, you were blessed by God even when you were an enemy. You were a persecutor of God, but you were loved. For God so loved the world He gave his only son. And when that hits you like a freight train, that frees you to bless those who persecute you. So that's the first way we can make our evangelism as a church believable to a watching world. We bless and we don't curse. The second way, verse 15. Believable evangelism enters into the emotional depths of others. That's the second point. Believable evangelism enters into the emotional depth of others. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. So here we're called to a hard discipline of 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 stopping. We've got to stop. We've got to listen. We've got to seek to understand where that person is coming from. What's going on in that person's inner world? So it's it's this can't be just like you know I know you on on a surface level and we're good. Like, hi on Sunday, hi, good, smile, okay. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying rejoice with those who rejoice. And you've got to weep with those who weep. That's going to require genuine, unhypocritical love. Mark preached last week, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. It's got to be genuine because love is never aloof. You can't have aloof love. It never stands off to the side when there's joy or when there's pain. When when that hits someone else's life, love steps in. But it always seeks solidarity. Whether it's singing, whether it's sorrows, whether it's tears, whether it's laughter, it identifies with the other. It's meeting people's needs right where they are, period. And it's it's taking whatever it takes to give people what they need. Dance with them, weep with them. Entering into someone else's humanity, that requires bandwidth though, and it is not safe. I don't know if you've ever really taken that to heart, like, and, and you wanted to go beyond that superficial relationship with somebody, that is not safe, You're, you really are putting yourself out there to a degree. I was struck by this quote um, by C.S. Lewis, I was on vacation over Labor Day weekend, and I was reading it, and it just struck me. And so I'm going to read it. It's, it fits perfectly here. He wrote, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe." in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. That whoa. Most of us me included, I'll speak for myself, have a hard time with my own emotions. And I read Paul saying, In view of God's mercy, rejoice with those who rejoice and and weep with those who weep. I have a hard enough time with my own struggle, my own baggage. Paul here is saying, think about your brothers and sisters. Think about what's going on in their lives and relate to them that way. I'm, I'm reminded is of, does is anyone here know of an individual named Joni Erickson Tata? Have you heard that name before? Quite a few. Um, she is an author, she's a speaker, she's an um, amazing woman. She's an inspiration to, to me and to a lot of uh, people. She's, she's lived most of her life paralyzed from the neck down. Um, She's, uh, and that was because of a diving accident she had when she was 18. Um, You can imagine what happened, and that diving accident left her paralyzed, and in an interview I read recently, she was asked by the interviewer, he said this, when were you, uh, when you were in the hospital room in despair about becoming a quadriplegic through your diving accident, were some comments people made, even with good intentions, what were some of those comments that were Hugely irritating. Um, so here's someone who's experienced something incredible, um, and you know people come in to to weep with her, to mourn with her, and he wants to know what are these people saying that you didn't like. And she said, I had many well-meaning friends my age who said well-meaning things, but they were uninformed because the Bible says weep with those who weep. When people are going through great trauma or great grief, they don't want answers because no answers reach the problems as deep as it hurts in the gut and in the heart. And the interviewer says, what does help? And she tells a story. When I was a little girl, I remember riding my bike down a steep hill. I made a right-hand turn, my wheel skidded out on gravel, and I crashed to the ground. My knees were a bloody mess, and my dad comes running out. I'm screaming and crying, and although I didn't ask why, if I had, How cruel it would have been for my my dad to stand over me and say, well, sweetheart, let me answer that question. Why, next time you're going down the hill, watch the steepness. Be careful about the trajectory of your turn. Be observant of the gravel. Those would all have been good answers to the question, why did this happen? But when people are going through great trauma and grief, they don't want to know why. They want daddy to pick them up, press them against his chest, pat them on the back and say, there, there, sweetheart. Daddy's here. It's okay. When we're hurting, that's what we want. We want God to be daddy, warm, compassionate, real, authentic, in the middle of our suffering. We want fatherly assurance that our world is not spinning out of control. Don't you dare be caught rejoicing with those who weep. That's a great answer to that question. And the interviewer just presses in a little bit farther, and he says, well... When you were in the hospital, what from your friends did sink in? And she says, One night, my high school friend Jackie, with whom I shared boyfriends, milkshakes, and hockey sticks, came into the hospital late one night, like 2 in the morning, past visiting hours. The nurses were on break, no one was in the hallway, and she crept up the steps of the hospital, snuck in the back way, came into my six-bed ward. I was with five other spinal cord injured girls who were all asleep my friend came sneaking into the room, crawling on her hands and knees. She came over to my bed, stood up slowly, lowered the guardrail of the hospital bed, just like high schoolers will do on pajama sleepovers. She climbed into bed next to me, snuggled real close, softly, and began to sing, Man of sorrows, what a name for the sun of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim hallelujah what a savior and she said they fell asleep crying together in the bed that's weeping with those who weep that image of that high school girl crawling into bed with her high school friend who had just become paralyzed now imagine an entire community of people willing to go to those links for one another, willing to to crawl into bed with one another and just sing and weep and pray, and if need be, be there as long as it takes. But we don't just weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and if I'm honest, I think sometimes rejoicing with those who rejoice is harder Uh, sometimes than weeping with those who weep. Because if your friend gets a good thing that you don't have, but that you want, is that easy to rejoice with that person? It's not easy. That can be difficult. Only when you let love be genuine, as we heard last week, can you be excited about the good things that are happening to other people, even the good things that you want, that they may already have, that they're getting more of. If the gospel captures your heart and your soul, then you can rejoice with anyone about anything. Entering into the emotional depths of others is believable evangelism. It's not safe, and it's going to require everything we have. But a love for Christ always compels you towards more people in their rejoicing and more people in their weeping. So believable evangelism blesses. It doesn't curse. It also steps into the emotional depths of others. And lastly, it demonstrates humility in ourselves and dignity towards others. Believable evangelism demonstrates humility in ourselves and dignity towards others. Look at verse 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with the person of low position. Do not be conceited that means demonstrate humility when you think about yourself and when you go to act towards someone else you demonstrate dignity live in harmony Paul says that's the idea of walking along at the right pace with people it's a reference to music and making sure that you're playing the music of your life at the same pace as the person next to you maybe that person can't play as fast or as well as you can but live in harmony with them means you're not going to give up on them, You're going to walk in step with them, have a sense of compassion on them, even if they're in a lower position as you. He says, let's be careful about identifying what is low and who is low. In the body of Christ, there's no job beneath any of us. None of us are too good to fill any role, Paul says. There's nobody too lowly to love. I think we know that if you, if you take a su- position of superiority of someone, you're never gonna have empathy on that person. You're never gonna feel any sort of sympathy for their plight. You're not gonna rejoice with them. You're not gonna weep with them. If you think you're superior, if you hold your nose in the air, it's impossible to give them a hug at the same time. And man, there is nothing that really like, sets off a trigger Uh, in me, and I'm fairly confident in you, Then, when you see someone that you perceive as a snob. You're like, man, that dude is a snob, or or that, that girl is a snob. And at the same time, it's so difficult to see that in ourselves. We can see it in others so well, but we have a hard time seeing it in ourselves. That's why we need a community around us to help us to live in humility. Not to think of ourselves too highly, but to think of others clearly. It reminds us, the gospel does, that we're sinners. We're in in need of of God's grace and that we're just as low as the lowest anybody, lowest nobody. We were all dead in sin. We've covered this. But we have God's grace to us in Christ. It also declares to us that in Christ we're wholly justified by God's gift of righteousness. So there's no boasting. I I have nothing To boast in front of you and you have nothing to boast in front of me it levels us all and the gospel also reshapes our lives towards others because in our culture our our you know when we look at others we judge them based on how valuable they are to us what can we get from them and in view of God's mercy Paul says we can lay that aside and in light of God's patience with us God shows that you know you don't deserve his mercy but he's been patient with you Romans says we can be willing to be patient with the growth of others a gospel community a local church that is is God's mission strategy in the world is going to be a place where the gospel is rich where you feel safe to confess your sin and where there's plenty of time because change doesn't happen quick people don't change quick we're complex people but a community that has the gospel and holds it up and is a place where we understand that there's no boasting, so you can be safe here. And also, we'll give you the time that you need because God has been patient with us. That is a community that will preach a believable evangelism. And we don't just leave it there, though, right? (coughs) Paul doesn't just leave it there because someone's going to say, yeah, but why what's the difference what all this stuff that you're talking about what's the difference Paul you know when you were a kid and your parents wanted you to do something that you didn't want to do what did they say I mean m- maybe not That's that's too open-ended you might get some some colorful answers if we say that but if you didn't do and I'll just speak of this I got four kids if my kids don't do what I tell them to do and they say why what I, I'm usually saying because I said so I appeal to my authority as the one who's bigger than them and is their father for now. I mean, I'll always be their father, but I won't always be bigger than them. But I'm going to appeal to my authority because I said so. That's not why Paul says we're to do these things. That's not the community that we're to be. Paul's not doing that to us. He could have. He's not saying to live your lives together this way because you've been given a command. He's not saying because I said so. He's saying because he did so. Jesus did so. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, in in view of what he's done for you in Christ, keep that in mind the whole time. God's mercies to us in Christ are why we bless and we don't curse. God's mercies to us in Christ are why we enter into the joys and the sufferings of other people. God's mercies to us in Christ come to persecutors, people like us. Jesus blessed, he didn't curse. He stopped Paul in his tracks on the Damascus Road, and what did he say to him? Paul, why are you persecuting me? But he didn't curse him. He saved him. Jesus walks alongside us. He he came as flesh and blood so that we could see how he lives, and he rejoiced with those who were rejoicing. He went to a wedding feast as a single man and brought the party. He rejoiced. He added to the goodness of it, and we see him weep with his friends at the death of his friend Lazarus. He shows that God is an emotional God. He feels and he cares. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's able to sympathize and relate with us so that we can now, in view of that, do that for others. And then if you read Philippians 2, you see Jesus' attitude. He took a lowly position of a servant. He set aside his rights and his privileges and his status as king and for a moment operated as someone who would serve the lowly to bless those who persecuted him. So if we have this in mind as a church, in view of the mercies of God, that's why God has commanded us to do what we're to do. It's not because he said so, it's because he did so, and that is the only motivation for a gospel culture, ready to make evangelism ready to uh, a leaving world. And we hold that out We're not perfect, but we're getting there by God's grace. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and he blessed his disciples by washing their feet. Even Judas. Think about that. Jesus blessed not just the man who was persecuting him, the man who betrayed him. In his darkest hour, we see Jesus blessing his enemies from the cross. Father, forgive them; they don't know what they're doing. He didn't curse; he blessed. And after he finished washing the disciples' feet, he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, "This is my body, broken for you." As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after uh, supper, he took a cup of wine, and he said, "This is the cup of the new covenant." My blood shed for you whenever you drink this. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And as a people, every week we come together. We remember that the Lord in Christ blessed us. He didn't curse us. We remember that he rejoices and our rejoicing and he weeps when we weep and so when we we come to the table wherever you are as a believer and you take the bread and you take the cup and you dip it into the wine which is marked with twine or, or the juice, whatever your conscience permits, you're reminded that Jesus in his solidarity enters into your humanity to love you as a servant but also as a savior and so if you're a Christian, we invite you to come down the aisle as the music is playing As you prepare your heart to be with Christ in this meal, you come, you take the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine, and remember that he came as a servant to love, to rejoice, to weep, to mourn, and to bless. And then, in turn, we do that for one another. Let me pray.